0: Hello and welcome to Poetry Blokes, the podcast where one bloke likes poetry and the other doesn't. I'm Matthew Adamo, failed novelist, third-rate poet, and now a beleaguered poetry teacher.
1: And I'm Rich Cochran, a moderately successful engineer and lifelong lover of things that actually matter, like football, cricket, and the ability to make stuff out of wood. I don't hate poetry, but I do think it's a lot of words, in a confusing order, to say very little.
0: Join us in this series of podcasts as we rummage into the recesses of Richard's mind, pull forth any literary force that may be lying dormant, and see if the world's most literal man can acquire the soul of a poet. He doesn't even believe in souls, so I've got my work out already. In this episode, we're looking at Morning Song by Sylvia Plath. Love set you going like a fat gold watch. The midwife slapped your foot soles, and your bold cry took its place among the elements. Our voices echo, magnifying your arrival. New statue. In a draughty museum, your nakedness shadows our safety. We stand round blankly as walls. I'm no more your mother, than the cloud that distils a mirror to reflect its own slow effacement at the wind's hand. All night, your moth breath flickers among the flat pink roses. I wake to listen. A far sea moves in my ear. One cry and I stumble from bed, cow heavy and floral in my Victorian nightgown. Your mouth opens clean as a cat's. The window square whitens and swallows its dull stars. And now you try your handful of notes. The clear vowels rise like balloons. So, Rich, what's that all about?
1: Well, well, well. It's a cheery little number, isn't it? Mmm. yes. I do know what this is about. Prepare to be wowed by my incredible analysis.
0: Oh, i am to sit back and
1: listen then. <laughs> Selling, you're in for a wild ride. Right. This poem is about the birth of a child.
0: Correct.
1: Nailed it. Thank you very much. What I would say is that I'm not sure she feels too great about this child. I'm presuming this is first person, Sylvia. She's had a baby. Actually, oh, so you learned that pretty early on. She goes straight into that. No messing around. Mentions the midwife flapping the foot soles, having a little cry, and so. Straight away, I understood what this poem is about, which was helpful. First two stanzas were all about having a baby. After that, stanzas three to six are a little bit insane. I completely lost the thread of what was going on and had absolutely no idea. Of all the poems you've given me, Matt, this is the one I've read the most.
0: Hooray! So that's successful. I like that.
1: But that's because I didn't understand it the first seven times I read
0: it. Well, that's fine, because it is quite difficult, even though it's very short. There's a lot of imagery in it. Yes. It's quite tricky to decode.
1: Would you like to hear some of the imagery that was brought to mind for me? Yes, I would. Okay, excellent. So, second stanza, right? We've made it quite clear Sylvia's having a baby. It's a very important moment in people's lives. Second stanza. Our voices echo magnifying your arrival. New statue. In a drafty museum. That's an interesting place to have a baby. Yes. Well, What's she doing yes. having a, a baby in a museum? <laughs> when I read that, I immediately thought of the entrance hall at the Natural History Museum underneath the big blue whale. And this idea that Sylvia Plath was akimbo underneath the blue whale, birthing her child as, as the doors swung open and a school party entered. And I thought, yeah, that would stress you out. That is a bad way to start your birth experience. So I'm not surprised that it goes downhill from there, really. I, um, I, don't,
0: I don't think any pregnant woman ever wants to be referred to as a Kimbo. <laughs> <laughs> this
1: is actually uh, an area that I currently have a reasonable amount of knowledge, being that my, my wife and I are expecting. So I have been reading a lot about this. You need dark, comfortable areas. For a man and a woman.
0: To, oh, wait, no, that's the wrong no, part. not that bit. All
1: right, go on. It's the same thing, Matt. It's all about oxytocin. Um, <laughs> you've got to promote oxytocin, suppress adrenaline. That's the key. So if you're having your baby in the middle of a museum, your adrenaline levels are going to be high and the oxytocin levels are going to be low. There's no <laughs> because, doubt about that.
0: Because you're disturbed you're by the people going to the cloakroom and sort of walking just past <laughs> the exhibition.
1: <laughs> yeah. So Oh, sorry, love, as they step <laughs> over you. So... I think she's only got herself to blame if she's chosen the museum to have her baby. It's a chance that it's not literally a museum. A small chance. Is she also literally giving birth to a statue? Well, the statue bit I thought was so odd I just breezed past it. Didn't really understand it.
0: Yeah, that's a theme in your textual analysis.
1: Yeah, so it starts, our voices echo magnifying your arrival. Well, that makes sense if you stood in the main hall of the Natural History Museum. <laughs> Hello! <laughs> <laughs> welcome! Welcome! <laughs> New statue. I thought maybe, you know, during a gap in, in contractions, she maybe looked up. She hadn't been to the Natural History Museum for a while. She looked up and went, oh, that's a new statue. It's just something she hadn't noticed before.
0: A bit there, by the way.
1: <laughs> then she talks about shadows or safety. Didn't really understand that. Again, if you're in a busy area giving birth, maybe she's doing it in the shadows as a means to some, some degree of privacy. But I don't know. You're not looking positive about this analysis, Matt. You look, <laughs> you're you looking at me like I've gone off on a on a tangent.
0: Who's standing round like a wall in this scenario? We. Oui, everybody. Everyone.
1: Everyone's standing around like
0: a wall. Well, though, to be honest, if you did walk into the National History Museum expecting to look at the large whale and you see a woman giving birth there under, you probably would stop and stand and quite look cool. quite, quite blankly. Yeah, you would. You'd go, oh, goodness me. It's me. How much is the cloakroom? Sorry, that's always my question when I go to a museum. I'm like, what? Well, I have to pay like two or three pounds to put a coat away. This is Actually, this has been a theme my entire life. Mm. I used to go to clubs and stuff in my younger days when I was, you know, uh, <laughs> sociable. I would um, often forgo the cloakroom because you had to pay one to two pounds. And I thought that was a waste. And I would just tuck my jacket into my back pocket of my jeans and then continue dancing. I would yeah. just go sans jacket. Yeah, silly though, it's cold outside.
1: Yes, but you would arrive cold warm yourself up with gyration and sensual movements throughout the evening. So you also get a beer jacket on the go. You'll be able to have an additional beer because you hadn't spent the one or two pounds on a room.
0: That really sums up the English approach to clubs, isn't it? It's like when you see those people in the depths of winter just wearing like a T-shirt and shorts cl- queuing for a club. It's that mentality. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. If you don't die from hypothermia before you get into the club, you're laughing.
1: Or do you remember going into a club and you, there's more steam in here than normal? Because it had been raining outside and nobody had worn a coat, so everyone had got wet in the line outside. You go into the club and get hot and steamy.
0: You've been to one of those clubs where it's so many people in there sweating that the sweat rises to the ceiling. Oh, and, and stains. it stains. No, even worse. It then sort of oh, back down. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it condenses and drops back down on you. I've had that. It's disgusting. Let's move on. During the giving birth under the whale in the National History Museum, what's the next part about? The cloud, distilling a mirror. Well, Matt, this bit is completely unreadable.
1: I actually think this, is, I think this is the
0: hardest part of the poem. It's probably the deepest part, but it's also the hardest part. Well, I'll tell you what, where
1: my brain went, OK? So it goes, I'm no more your mother than the cloud that distills a mirror to reflect its own slow effacement at the wind's hand. And I was like, what does that mean? Who confuses their mother with a cloud? i had this image of me waiting for my mum i occasionally we we meet up and we might meet at a pub or meet at a coffee place or something and i'll be sitting there waiting for her and she's often later than me
0: Some deep root psychological uh, trauma there she's often, often late
1: <laughs> yeah yeah she, she is but i'm always on time. i'm always early for everything except for this podcast actually which i was late for. and i had this idea of me sitting there and looking up and there being a shape in the distance and me looking at that shape and going oh is that is that mum now, I'll wait for him to get a bit closer. I can't quite see it. It looks like mum. I think it's mum. I think it's mum. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. It's not mum. It's a cloud that distills a mirror to reflect his own slower face from the wind's hand. That's what and, that is.
0: And it's gone. And it's gone. Bye, cloud. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. oh, there she is. I often get the two confused between
1: the cloud and my mum. <laughs> um, couldn't even hazard a guess at what that was about.
0: We'll come back to that later because this is one of those poems where my sort of Brief bit of analysis towards the end might proffer a few answers. This is definitely one for the English student. It's definitely one for a bit of textual analysis and reading into. But hopefully when you move on to the next stanza about the moth breath, is that is that more comfortable? Are you clearer on what that's about? No, not at all. Okay.
1: So all night your moth breath flickers among the flat pink roses. Now, presumably moth breath. So she's accusing her child of having moth breath. I don't know what the breath of a moth is like.
0: I don't think she's talking about the smell of the breath. That's the point here. She's made it like a compound noun by using this hyphen, like moth breath. But um, I think it relates to the motion of that breath or the heaviness of that breath.
1: But I think she's making the assumption that people are more familiar
0: with the breath of moths than they actually are. (laughs) Well, how would the breath of a moth compare to the breath of a human, for example?
1: I don't know. I've never thought about it.
0: Well, in terms of... I'll go and get
1: myself a tiny little stethoscope. Hunt a moth. Listen to its breathing patterns.
0: I would absolutely love to see you in the fields of Berkshire, trying to capture a moth. And if anyone were to stop you, say, "Why? Are you, what are you doing with that moth? And you'd be like, look, I'm investigating its breath. Move along. <laughs> <laughs> this is none of your business. But yeah, if you had to hazard a guess, would you say that a, a moth's breath was A, lighter or B, heavier than a human's breath?
1: Uh, well judging by their size, I would guess lighter breath. Good. Yeah. They don't don't have large lung capacity.
0: Who's she looking at when she's talking? Whose breath is moth breath? It's shallow. Who's got shallow breath? Oh, well, the baby. Correct. Correct. So she's just looking at the baby and looking at its tiny, tiny breaths. Tiny
1: little breaths. I thought she was complaining about the breath, the smell of the breath.
0: Of the moth. Get that moth out of here.
1: Like a stale smell. Like you've gone into your baby. You peer over the cot and you're like, oh, f me. Oh, no. <laughs> sorry.
0: <laughs> like an old book.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, stinks. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Flickers among the flat pink roses. Well, now that makes sort of more sense, the flickering bit. I thought it was some poor parenting. Left the baby out amongst the roses.
0: <laughs> I, I think I think fair to assume that the, the pink roses are in the uh, maternity ward with her. Oh, we're still in the ward, are we? We haven't got home yet. Well, it's actually not clear, but either works, I suppose, either in 30s or back home. they had to leave the museum. They're in an ante room, recovering. <laughs> a far sea moves in my ear is, is a difficult one, but again, we'll come we'll come back to that. Oh, no, I've got that bit. Oh, yeah?
1: Ear infection. Oh, yeah. Very run down after the birth, very tired. There's a lot going on. Sylvia's picked up a small ear infection, which can sound like sloshing of the sea in the ear.
0: Is it like when you get, maybe she got like water. You know when you get water in your ear? I hate that. It just
1: forms a seal in your ear. This is us continuing our campaign against swimming.
0: Oh, I hate it. (laughs) Yes, another reason to not swim. Yeah, don't swim. It just goes in your ears. Ear water. Triggers that later on. It's gross. Yeah, disgusting.
1: So, yeah, ear infection, feeling very run down. It all builds into the picture. It makes sense. Like, you've just had a baby. You've got an ear infection. You're in a natural history museum. You're knackered. Your baby's got stinky breath. (laughs) And you're thinking, what have I done? What have I done? There's no turning back. I may be putting some of my own feelings about my impending parenthood, but there's no, there's no turning back.
0: Was that a bit where you were crying? What have I done? Oh my god, what have I done? Is that your, <laughs> is that your projection? <laughs> yeah, it's that bit.
1: Moving swiftly on, fifth stanza. One cry and I stumble from my bed, cow heavy and floral in my Victorian nightgown. That makes perfect sense. That's something I would expect. Baby's crying. You stumble from your bed. Cow heavy. I'm guessing she's she's just post-pregnancy. She's not feeling massively positive about herself. Her body's been through a lot of physical strain. But she has made the effort to put on a nice floral nightgown. So, just wandering through the halls of the Natural History Museum. (laughs) In a floral nightgown. Anyway. What about the cat's mouth? Well, she's back on all hygiene, isn't she? She's back onto all hygiene. So your mouth opens clean as a cat. What does that mean? Clean as a cat's
0: what? <laughs> oh, It's funny, isn't it? Because actually, if, if anyone has ever, uh, who owns a cat or has ever been close to a cat when it yawns, you will know that its mouth tastes, or smells rather, Ooh, uh, foul. It's an insight into your, <laughs> Kent? Just like, Um Just licking a cat's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it's, one of, it's one of the stranger fetishes.
1: Yeah. But she seems <laughs> preoccupied with oral hygiene. So the breath, the stinky breath, like that of a moth, stale and horrible, and your mouth is disgusting like a cat's. I don't think she's necessarily realised that she's responsible for this baby. This baby's like 10 minutes old. Like you, You've you got to give it a break. You know, it's been through a lot. It then goes on to say the window square, the end of that stanza.
0: End of the stanza, but not end of the sentence.
1: Mental. <laughs> that is a mental way to write. <laughs> well. And then I did pick up the next stanza. Whitens and swallows its dull stars. So that, I think is the sun coming up this morning. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. that's that's fair. Occasionally could we'll get it right.
0: That's what me and the listeners are all about. We're all looking for you to pull out that one nugget, that one diamond in the rough, and we're like, we're all behind you. We're like, yes, yes, he's done it. Not sure about the uh give birth in the National History Museum having breath like a moth. <laughs> or some of the other comments, but for this one, we're, we're there. We're right with you. Thanks. Appreciate the support.
1: And now you try your handful of notes. The clear vowels rise like balloons. It's crying again.
0: Yeah, they do that, don't they? Babies.
1: Yeah, very needy. Stinky breath. Very needy. Cry a lot. That's the summary, basically. I mean, that's pretty much what I got from that. It was very difficult to read. Like, it seemed to cover about, like, five minutes of time. Oh, no, in the morning. So it's like one night. It's like one. It's like the first night, the baby being born.
0: So Total opposite to the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, where they cover about, like, a month in one stanza without noting the passing of time. Do you feel happier that Sylvia has signposted the transition of time a bit more?
1: Uh, yes, I do. I'm quite happy with the content of the poem. I, I think I know what it's about. Unlike the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, where I just had not the foggiest idea of what's going on.
0: Yeah, I think we also roughly know where it is as well. In terms, It's of in the
1: Natural History Museum.
0: Below, yeah, below the, the whale. Yeah, we know
1: exactly where it is. Well, we know who's there, Sylvia. Some mm. flowers
0: and a moth. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, heavy breathing moth and uh, a cat.
0: Yeah, it's like... Um, it's a menagerie.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: <sighs> Most of what else I don't want to say about this poem? I'm a bit worried about Sylvia. Do you know anything about a silver plop, actually, before you looked at this poem? I've heard some rumours. What rumours have you heard?
1: That she's quite a deep thinker.
0: True, yeah, true.
1: She killed herself?
0: Correct, yeah, we'll come to that.
1: Okay, that's everything I know.
0: Advertise with us to reach an audience who love to laugh, are obviously very cool and sophisticated and have immaculate taste. I mean, they're here listening to this gold, right? Go to poetryblokes.com forward slash advertising to advertise with us today. I think we can assume that Sylvia is the narrator of this poem. Not every poem that an author writes, they're not necessarily narrating it. But I think we can generally assume that Sylvia is the narrator in this poem. How would you describe how she feels about having a child, being a mother? I mean, works.
1: Well, she's talking directly to the baby from the off. Yeah. Um, which is good because the earlier you start speaking to them, they recognise your voice from before their birth. So the earlier you get in there, the better better chance they've got of developing language and understanding who you are. So it's it's really good practice. I'm, I'm, I'm with her on that one.
0: Have you been reading some scientific tomes to your pregnant wife's belly?
1: No, I used to sing little ditties made up on the spot, and they usually revolve around Arsenal Football Club, what I've had to eat that day, and how tired I'm feeling.
0: <laughs> That's a good introduction to that child. <laughs> It you knows so it's getting
1: <laughs> yeah exactly I've forgotten what your question was now
0: how does Sylvia feel about them having this baby
1: I think she's in two minds um,
0: yeah it starts with love right
1: love set you going like a fat gold watch so it implies that there's some love there this isn't a child from a from a loveless relationship or anything like that it's, it's a wanted child mm. but then a, f- a fat gold watch is a bit harsh isn't it straight off the bat to call your
0: baby fat it's quite a jarring image isn't it yeah I was jarred. Well, I think Plath is trying to deliberately jar your preconceptions. So so she used this fat gold watch image. But I think a lot of what she's saying in this poem is not necessarily what you would expect, stereotypically, of what a new mother might say. And particularly when you bear in mind that this was written in 1960, I think she's deliberately going against the grain. She's probably slightly ahead of her time, if you like. She's going against the grain and she's saying, actually, it's not all, you know, sing-song and rainbows when you have a child. It's actually quite a lot of hard work and it makes you feel many different emotions and you're kind of confused about it and you and the situation so i think she does a lot of this contrast in this poem it's a lot of of silence there sorry i was listening to you
1: intently i was genuinely i was thinking about because i've done so much reading on on pregnancy at the moment every time you keep telling me stuff like this i'm like yeah that does this does tally with with a lot of stuff I've been reading, actually. This,
0: this is ringing true. Well, I think with the fat gold watch, for example, it's. I, I just wonder whether the fat gold watch, the fact that it's fat, is, is that relating to like the chubbiness of the baby? But also the fact that it's gold, that's like a precious material. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and probably most importantly, it's a watch. So when the baby's born, it, its life starts ticking, as it were, in the same way as a watch starts ticking. So she's linking those two things together and it's love which actually starts the whole thing ticking right so it's like you said she's in a relationship where she feels love and it's love that set everything ticking like a fat gold watch so um her love with ted hughes who is also a poet is what instigated this Ah, this this existence she sort of carries on talking about these sort of very foundational things your bald cry took its place among the elements elements are foundational things like wind fire they're their core sort of building blocks of life on earth and she's again making a comparison between these elements and this child representing something intrinsic or elemental to either her own being or all humans existence or something to do with you know the the fact that we procreate that that's significant Uh, and she's just giving this child the same status as the elements but it's not something that you can necessarily grasp very easily on a first read but that's sort of generally what Plath's poems are about, and she has very engaging imagery. So I thought I'd just carry up, just run through the rest of the poem. Yeah, uh, yeah, please do. Uh, with a bit more textual analysis. God so, knows I need it. Next point, our voices echo, magnifying your arrival. New statue. There's a real sense in this poem, I think, that Plath is invoking a sense of distance between her and the child, or her and other people and this child. So the echoing voices, I think, suggests a sort of emptiness which is followed by the image of the child as a statue in a drafty museum. And the fact that it's a new statue, again, makes me think that that's like an image of flawless perfection, okay, like a marble yeah, yeah. statue. When you look at it, you're like, wow, it's like a stylized version of real life. And it's something that you can only gaze at and appreciate. You don't necessarily have a, a direct emotional attachment or engagement when you look at a statue. You look at a statue, it's like a, it's like a symbolic representation of something or someone. It's not like it's different from a painting or something like that. It's very sort of cold and hard. I think she plays on that. And I think putting it in a drafty museum as well is it sort of exaggerates and magnifies the child's arrival as quasi religious or inspiring event from which she feels slightly distanced. Like right, she's in okay. it. She's just like playing a part in it. She doesn't necessarily feel like she's completely bound up in the emotionality of it. And then you get like a bit further on. It, it does get a bit trickier. Your nakedness shadows our safety. We stand round blankly as walls. Again, to me, that's a very sterile image. I mean, that's
1: good. I mean, it's good. The sterility.
0: Uh, You want to keep it clean. You want to keep it clean. But uh, not only that, but she's keeping it like emotionally sterile as well. She's reinforcing that distance. But I guess by implying that the nakedness of the baby sort of envelops their safety or comfort, or maybe it's because it's changing their life. Uh, the the safety and comfort of their life beforehand is changed by the sort of arrival of this naked statue. Basically I think she's picking images that suggest that she's sort of there just like gawping at this child like I don't know what to do. Like I know that I've just brought this child into the world but I'm just kind of looking at it like it's this separate thing. I don't know if I necessarily feel what you're quote unquote supposed to feel.
1: Ah so that's a really interesting point actually. Getting too serious about it but all the stuff I have been reading is all about how in the 1960s and around that time, even, even up to sort of more recently, women could feel very disconnected from their birth because it was done in a very style environment. It was sort of in, on a ward by doctors in a very processed, methodical way. And they didn't have much control. So it's interesting to think of that sense, not that two blokes could possibly have a, a really sense of understanding, detachment from a birth.
0: No, but we could definitely have a sense of what Sylvia's trying to say about it. And she's, yeah. in my view, I think she's trying to communicate exactly what you're saying there is that she's communicating this separateness, this stability, this not necessarily feeling engaged in the whole process. And then she sort of moves on and the next stanza is further self-reflection. So she says, I'm no more your mother than the cloud that distills a mirror to reflect its own slower facement at the wind's hand. That's quite dense. It's a complex line. There's a lot going on there. I think what she's saying is she feels like she's a mother to this child in the same way as a cloud is the mother to a raindrop. I think the tricky image there is the cloud that distills a mirror. So while the cloud creates the raindrop, It's like, again, the cloud is only a part of the process. You wouldn't say that there was necessarily an attachment between the cloud and the raindrop. You would say they're two sort of separate entities, but one just comes from the other. And I think, again, she's trying to reinforce that sense with this birth. She's like, well, I just feel like I'm a woman that gives birth to a child because that's what women do. That's their role. And I'm just playing that role. I don't feel like motherly or motherliness. And on top of that, she goes a bit further because she says, I'm no more your mother than the cloud that distills a mirror to reflect its own slow effacement at the wind's hand. So it's like she's saying that she's conscious of her own.
1: Oh, no, Matt, we're not talking about death again, are we?
0: Oh, I don't think we are. But I think we're talking about identity being rubbed away or eroded away. That's kind of what she's saying. Right. So this, she's like, I'm the cloud. I, I produced this raindrop. And this raindrop is reflecting its own slow effacement at the wind's hand. So it's talking about time and ageing, I think, not necessarily death.
1: Poets are really hung
0: up on time. We haven't got a lot of time. (laughs) I think we've got too much time. You're an engineer. You just sort of recline and think about girders. Yeah, I
1: do love a good girder.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You do love a good girder. Then she, she moves on from that sort of time effacement who am I, question, to focus on the baby next. So she's like caught up in thinking about herself and her own identity. And then she says, all night your moth breath flickers among the flat pink roses. I wait to listen. A far sea moves in my ear.
1: We've already covered that. We already know what that was all about, Matt.
0: The old ear infection. Yep. Sound of the sea there, another sort of distant thing. A bit ephemeral. You can't really pin anything down. It's just sort of out there.
1: But why the moth breath? Why choose a moth of all the things with shallow breathing?
0: Because it's delicate, I think. She, I think she's implying the delicacy. Like a moth is a delicate thing, so the breath of a moth is like doubly delicate, barely perceptible. Right. Do moths actually? Say. Do they breathe? Is yeah. that, is that your next question. Do they breathe? They no, no, i guess lungs, lungs
1: do they? i Google it. Do they not have lungs? I don't
0: think insects have got lungs. Well, no, but they must respire.
1: Must they? Fish don't. Insects have lungs.
0: This is a candidate for deletion.
1: Oh. Instead of lungs, insects breathe the a network of tiny tubes called trachea. Trachea? Trachea. Trachea. Yeah. Trachea. Edit that so I sound like I've got it right the first time, please. And it enters the tubes through a row of holes along an insect's abdomen. So they don't breathe, so she got that wrong.
0: No, you literally said the word breathe.
1: Oh, hang on, did I? Oh, yeah, they do.
0: <laughs> Me and Sylvia Fath. win again. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, it does say the word breathe. Stand down my, my criticism.
0: So moths do breathe. And this baby is very delicate like a moth. It has very delicate moth-like breath. This baby
1: breathes through tubes down its abdomen.
0: And Sylvia can only see the effects of this respiration by the gentle flicker among the flat pink roses, which we can assume are beside the baby. And she moves away from the baby again and she sort of comes back to her own state. So she says, one cry and I stumble from bed. Cow heavy. And you picked up on this or does not imply someone being particularly comfortable with how they're feeling, just their own comfort in their own body. So she is sort of saying, well, I don't feel particularly svelte right now. I feel actually a bit like a cow. And I'm also wearing a floral Victorian nightgown." And then she counterpoints that against the baby's mouth opening clean as a cat, which again is quite an odd image, I think. Very odd. Again, sort of implying certain innocence there, I think. Just a sort of side point. Plath often uses animal uh, metaphor and simile in her poems. But she's quite like strong at that. She often evokes animals themselves or references to animals. So that's maybe that's why there's a moth in here and a cat, whereas you might not necessarily expect other people to write that. Fair enough. The, win- the window square, also quite weird. Yeah. You're an engineer. Is there a window square in a house? Have you ever heard of there being window squares?
1: I'm not an engineer that builds houses, though, am I? Well,
0: I sound like a rubbish engineer to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't even build a house. Rubbish.
1: I oh, know, sorry. I am actually quite a useless engineer.
0: A very specialised engineer.
1: I could not be more specialised. It's unbelievable.
0: What's your speciality again?
1: I don't want to talk about that. This
0: is this what the listeners are here for?
1: No, because it's boring, and you know it's boring. That's why you're making me say it. <laughs> window square. What is it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Most windows aren't square, are they? So, who knows what a window square is? It's, it's just got a shape wrong. She means the window rectangle.
0: That's perfectly square. Did you see me, like, a... A bay window wall or something. They're sort of square.
1: A window square.
0: Or like a blind? What okay? does
1: she mean directionally, like s- square to her? <laughs> like a square ball? <laughs> yeah. Lay off. A three ball to the window.
0: I found this one a bit confusing, to be honest with you, but I- I'm fairly confident she's talking about a window. I think we can assume so. And so what happens there? I mean, you touched on it earlier and you were correct, so I want you to double down on it. The window
1: square whitens and swallows its dull stars. So that's the sun coming up.
0: Sun comes up and says goodbye to the night. And then what happens?
1: And now you try your handful of notes. The clear vowels rise like balloons.
0: Yeah, so... Oh, it's kicking off. Yeah, it's a baby. The baby's only got a handful of notes. So it can only make a handful of notes. But the image of something rising like balloons, happy or sad image?
1: Uh, Depends if you're still holding on to them or not.
0: <laughs> oh wait no sorry you're not being elevated by the balloons
1: <laughs> right, no so not in a balloon race because <laughs> if you're in a balloon race that's literally what you want to happen you're like oh here we go we're in the race now lads but if you're a little kid with a balloon you don't want it rising off without you based on the vibe of the poem up to, to this point i'm guessing it's the latter It's a sad image of these balloons just floating away into nothingness
0: i'm going to disappoint you because i'm going to say i think it's the opposite I think Sylvia stitched you up there by talking a lot about... Oh, I think uh, you stitched me up. You led me down that path and I walked down it. All I said was, was it happy or sad? And you went straight for it. You thought you'd got one over on me. There's Uh, a look in your eye. There's always a look in my eye. I'm a very... (laughs) I don't know what I was going to say there, but... (laughs) (laughs) I'm a very visual person. I've got expressive eyes, Rich. I I think Sylvia actually, despite sort of earlier in the poem talking about confusion and identity and not really knowing where she is in this process of childbirth or motherhood. I think at the end she's saying, and then in the morning when the baby cries, the sounds lift upwards like balloons, a sort of like an uplifting sentiment. So she's talking about the happiness of having a child. It's a complex poem in the way it's written. It's an emotionally complex poem in its content. Sylvia Plath is a complex person overall. Um, I mean,
1: if, if I think if you get any time in your life, you can have complex emotions. I think the birth of your child is one of the ones you can you can put down to it's all right to have complex emotions at that point, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Speaking of a man who doesn't have complex emotions, I'm yeah. expecting to have some more complex emotions at the birth of my child.
0: You can count Rich's emotions on one hand, generally in a given day. I reckon.
1: What would you say they are?
0: Neutral. I'd say neutral is an emotion with Rich. I'd say uh, that's
1: 90% of the day.
0: I'd say ranting. Because both you and I like a good, very hard, intense burst of ranting about roughly five minutes long. Yep, I'll give you that one. Yep. Yeah. I think based on our previous podcast, I think there's emotion around tea, but I'm not sure how to express it. But sort of addiction. wanting. Yeah. Addiction. Like a feeling yeah. of I need another cup of tea right now. Yep. And I think hunger. Again, that comes under addiction for me. Oh, okay, right. And uh, I think frustration. Yeah. Frustration's an emotion. I think that's four. And then the fifth one, boredom or like disinclination? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's been
0: really paid me to an awful
1: version <laughs> what about happy,
0: I mean, happiness joy I mean I've seen it sometimes sure but would I put it in there with the five of your average day maybe I don't know <laughs> actually fair to Rich I definitely think your uh, spectrum of emotions is more ascertainable for the average person whereas I think with me there's a lot of confusion on the part of the other person. For example, a lot of people might think I'm annoyed, but I'm actually happy. We know how it happens sometimes. Also, people think I'm happy, I'm slightly frustrated. So these are all confusing things. But yeah, I think quite a nice, nice neutral palette of emotions there. So when your child is born, I'm hoping that it's like a, just a Pandora's box of everything just coming out.
1: I don't. I hope it's a great baby with fully formed social skills so that I don't have
0: to teach it any. Oh wow! I forgot about that. Jeez. That's why I've got a wife. Uh, moving on. How do you feel? <laughs> I meant that she could. She's got better <laughs> social skills. No, she does. I, I know her. Fastest Can't wait to when this child learns how to how to log, and then carve and whittle and lane. That's when you're going to come with your own.
1: There's going to be a surplus of wooden spoons in this house.
0: <laughs> uh, so, how do you feel about this poem now that I've run through it a bit more in a bit more depth?
1: Genuinely, I actually quite like it. It's At uh, this time in my life, it's quite poignant. It strikes a chord with me in, in a lot of it, what is said by Sylvia. I think it, it's very hard to read. Like if you're an amateur like me, it's not something that necessarily is going to make sense. But this is what we're learning, Matt. Reading along with poetry, having it read to you and explained, it could still be interesting.
0: <laughs> Nevertheless, it can be interesting. Shall we do... Sylvia Plath's biography, before you finish off with your engineer's overview of the poem. That would be lovely, yes, please. Okay. Sylvia Plath was born on the 27th of October, 1932, in Boston, Massachusetts, United States.
1: Oh, I didn't know she was American. I thought she was English. That is based on one blue plaque I read once in London.
0: Wow, that's coming up a bit further. So Sylvia Plath published her first poem at eight years old. Precocious and continued to write and enter literary competitions throughout her childhood. And whilst in high school, she sold her first poem to the Christian Science Monitor and her first short story to Seventeen Magazine. So quite good early on.
1: Yeah, she's
0: getting in early doors. Absolutely. Uh, She entered Smith College in the US on a scholarship in 1951 and was a co winner of the Mademoiselle Magazine fiction contest. In 1952 prize-winning author by the time she leaves university essentially while she was at Smith Plath achieved quite considerable artistic academic and social success but she also suffered from severe depression and attempted suicide and underwent a period of psychiatric hospitalization she graduated from Smith nevertheless with highest honors in 1955 and then went on to Newnham College Cambridge on the Fulbright Fellowship and Newnham was one of two I think Colleges at like Cambridge, uh, which were women only. In 1956, she married the English poet Ted Hughes and uh, went on to have two children with him. But they separated in 1962 after Hughes had an affair with another Oh, woman.
1: Ted, come
0: on. Ted, Ted, Ted. Uh, during 57-58, Plath was an instructor in English at Smith College. And In 1960, shortly after she returned to England with Hughes, her first collection of poems appeared called The Colossus and it received re- good reviews. And then her novel, The Bell Jar, was published in London in 1963 under the pseudonym Victoria Lucas. The Bell Jar, very popular, classically acclaimed uh, novel. The Bell Jar was autobiographical and described the mental breakdown and eventual recovery of a young college girl. Um, so very autobiographical, based essentially on Plath's own breakdown of hospitalisation in 1953. In 1963, uh, she spoke with her doctor about feeling increasingly depressed. Uh, Her doctor did prescribe for antidepressants, but a few days later, Plath took her own life at her home in London. Um, Ah,
1: that's where I saw the plaque then.
0: Exactly. Uh, During her last three years, Plath abandoned a lot of the restraints and conventions that had bound her early work. And she wrote very prodigiously and she produced a lot of poems about stark self-revelation and confession, of which Morning Song is one of them. Her poem, Daddy and Several Others, explore her Difficult and conflictive relationship with her father, Otto, who died when she was eight. Uh, many of Plath's posthumous publications were compiled by Ted Hughes, who became the executor of her, her state. Um, however, there's a lot of controversy surrounding that because of the management of her work's copyrights and also Ted Hughes's editing practices. Uh, and that came to a head really when he revealed that he destroyed the last journals she had written prior to her death in, in 1963. Yeah, we're going to do Ted at any point. We can do Ted. Ted was Poet Laureate, so we should definitely do oh, Ted. Will
1: well, we shall give him some short
0: shrift when we do. That's a definite lead-in for a future episode. Final point on Sylvia Plath was her um, final collection, Ariel, which came out in 1965, so two years after her death. That collection included Daddy and another of her, one of her well-known poems, Lady Lazarus, and that collection received a review in the New York Times that praised its relentless honesty, sophistication of the use of rhyme and bitter force. And similarly, the poetry magazine noted a pervasive impatience, a positive urgency to the poems, and it served to increase her notoriety as a poet across the globe. A very complex life, a very, yeah, me. very successful and prodigious writer, one of my favorite poets and, you know, generally considered one of the best poets in the English language, but obviously very complex and troubled elements to her life. And to wrap it up... <laughs> yeah, sorry, you've left me yeah,
1: left me stunned. I'm you know, deep in thought about Sylvia and her, her life.
0: Yeah, she does that to you. She does that to you. Uh, not only her life, but also her writing as well, which is, I think, very, very rich. It is difficult to engage with on the first read, but I do encourage everybody to keep going back to it because the more work you put into it, I think the more you see in it and the more you get out of it.
1: Yeah, I think I might have developed a sixth emotion.
0: Ooh, in- intrigue. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no I don't know what it is yet I just feel like I might have just developed it today. Oh, based, report back based on this when I when I figured it out I'll let you know what it is I can't
0: wait uh, well I'll hand over to you to do your um, engineer's overview of uh, Morning Song by Sylvia Plath
1: Morning Song by Sylvia Plath baby you've been born beneath a whale skeleton in the Natural History Museum all you do is cry and your breath stinks it's morning now and you're crying again the end
0: touching thanks very much Rich for your insights uh, join us next week when we look at An Arundel Tomb by Philip Larkin Ooh. do you have a well-known poem you'd like us to discuss or maybe you've written your own engineer's overview you'd like to share and if you have an embarrassing poetry related story then you definitely have to tell us all about that Go to poetryblokes.com forward slash submissions now to let us know and you could play a part in the next show. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram to see and hear more poetry ramblings. Subscribe to the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to make sure you never miss out. This podcast is created and hosted by Matthew Adamo and Richard Gochman. Our theme music is Press Start by The Laszlo Project. Buy their music by going to bandcamp.com and searching The Laszlo Project. Our producer is Dominic Gore.